Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, we return this morning to our verse-by-verse study of the book of Ephesians, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Christians in and around Ephesus. And we come today to chapter 3, verses 14 through 19 as our text. And you recall that this is a prayer, the second prayer that the Apostle Paul prays in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. In chapter 1 of Uh, verse 1, rather, of chapter 3, the Apostle Paul seemingly was about to start his prayer. He's about to say, I, Paul, bow my knee. And before he can get out the words, he remembers something else that he needs to say. And what he needs to say is that he needs to describe what the Lord is doing through the church. And the rest of the, the book is about the church. And Paul is amazed that he got to be the human means through which This great mystery, something hidden in the past that God has chosen now to reveal is made known. And the mystery that has been revealed through the Apostle Paul is that Jews and Gentiles become one in the body of Christ. That they are part of the same eternal plan of redemption. There's not a plan for Jews and a plan for Gentiles. One is not excluded, the other is not included that he has brought together through Christ people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And he is creating something wonderful and new. And Paul refers to this new thing as a body. Christ, of course, is the head and the members are the component parts. He also refers to the church in terms of a great building, a dwelling place for God, with Christ as the cornerstone. The foundation upon which the church is being built is the revelation given to the apostles, including the apostle Paul. And we can tell that Paul is just overwhelmed by this marvelous truth. And in fact, in verse 13, he writes a very personal note and he says, therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they're for your glory. Paul understood that everything that happened was part of God's purpose that God was sovereign, whether good or bad, or we would view it as indifferent, God is using it. And so here's Paul writing from a Roman prison cell. And we know all the deprivations and hardships that led up to that. And Paul is telling Ephesians who are walking in freedom, much better physical and financial shape than he's in, not to worry about him, not to lose heart, because these things were happening so that God would be glorified and it was on their behalf. Now we come to verse 14. Let's read this prayer together. Ephesians 3, 14. Paul writes, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. And so he says for this reason that is because of all the things that I've said leading up to this. Because God has one eternal redemptive plan, because God is putting together something new, the church, and you're a part of that, I'm going to pray for you. 
So he says, I'm going to bow my knee. Well, this is the posture of the Apostle Paul's prayer. Well, it's not the only effective posture for praying. Um, we've all been in emergency situations where we don't have time to, to bow our knee and we just utter a prayer reflexively to the Lord. It's not that he doesn't hear unless we're in the right physical posture. But it is a correct posture, isn't it? When we bow our knee, we're doing what the scripture says every human being that's ever lived one day will do. Paul says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. We are recognizing the relationship that we have with God. He is master, he is Lord, he is sovereign, and we are his subjects. We are his servants and we come to him in submissiveness calling on him to do something for us that we're unable to do for ourselves. But the posture of the heart is more important than the posture of the body, isn't it? The scripture says that man judges outward appearances, but God looks upon the heart. It's altogether possible to be as the Pharisees who had all the right accoutrements, had all the right mannerisms, had all the right postures of prayer, but Jesus says their heart was far from the Lord. Paul's heart was right and then his knee was bent and he says that he bows his knee before the Father. That's a very important term. Do you remember when Jesus' disciples begged him to teach them how to pray? He says, when you pray, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. Now that was an amazing thing because that was not the kind of term of endearment that they were used to hearing and using themselves when it came time to pray. But remember that through the blood of Jesus, because we are in Christ, Paul has said twice up until this point in Ephesians that we now have access to the Father. Because of our sinfulness, there was a time when we were denied access to God. He's holy and we're sinful. But now that we are in Christ, his blood has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. He tells us not only can we have access to God the Father, he says we can come to him as we saw last week with confidence and boldness. Confident that he loves us, that he wants us to come, that we're invited to come and that we have the right to come. We come with boldness, but not with arrogance. Arrogance is self-sufficiency. Boldness is one who recognizes that his sufficiency is in and through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we can call him Father, Abba, Daddy. We are his children because, as chapter 1 says, we have been adopted into his family. Now, there's a uh, belief and a notion that's very popular at the end of the 19th century, well into the 20th century. And the idea was the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. Meaning that every person on planet earth, by virtue of their humanity, belonged to one big brotherhood. And that's a warm fuzzy, and that's a very beautiful sentiment. It's simply not true. Jesus says there are two families. There are those who are the children of God, children of the Father, and those who are the children of the devil. And those who are the children of the Father are those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, whose sins have been forgiven. Those who are still in the kingdom of darkness, the children of Satan, are those who have failed and have not bowed their knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now R.C. Sproul says there is a universal neighborhood because Jesus says love your neighbor, right? But there is not a universal brotherhood. There is a brotherhood, though, for all of those who are part of the family of God by virtue of faith in Christ. And so Paul says here something very interesting. He says, 
of whom every family in heaven and earth is named. Now, some have read into that universalism, that uh, all roads will lead to heaven. We saw last week why that was not true. He's speaking here of all of those who have put their faith in Christ. Every epic of history. Think of it this way. When you pray this morning, you are praying to the same God that your great, 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 great grandparents prayed to. I like to think of it this way. When I go out to the countryside, look up into the stars, and I'm amazed by the Lord's handiwork, I am gazing upon the very same stars that God drew Abraham's attention to when he gave him his covenant and told him that he was going to make his descendants as many as the stars in heaven. This is what he's saying. Those in heaven, those who've gone on before, and those who remain on earth, we still are part of the same family of God. Now that brings us this morning to our outline and to our specific text. And the title of today's message is Paul's Prayer List. Now we have all kind of lists around our house. I, I'm always looking for scrap paper to write a sermon idea on. And, and uh, my wife gets frustrated when I use her grocery list to do that. And she starts looking for that. And, uh, and so I like lists. We all do. I also like uh, I also like primary source documents when it comes to history. I like to go back and read what people said in their own words. A few years ago, I became almost obsessed with the story of Lewis and Clark. You remember Lewis and Clark? Lewis and Clark were the adventurers that were commissioned by the federal government to explore the Louisiana Purchase. The United States had purchased a large piece of land covering a good portion of North America, and it needed to be mapped And there needed to be routes and roads and uh, rivers plotted. And it was the job of Lewis and Clark and their expedition to do that. And I came across a few years ago the handwritten diaries of Meriwether Lewis. And it was amazing just to read in his own handwriting what happened every day. March the 1st, 10 grizzly bears attacked us. And it was amazing. Almost every day something was happening that was right out of a, a, a movie set. And one of the things I remember about that is how they hunted in those days. They had just single shot muskets. And so the way they hunted for bears, they'd find a bear in his den and uh, the fastest runner among them was the first one. And he would go to the den and then they would line up subsequent hunters every 50 yards all the way down the road. And so he would shoot his musket into the den and make the bear angry. And then he would take off running. And he would run down that path where lined up these hunters and every 50 yards one more shot until the bear finally dropped and died. And you men that have uh, those heaters and air conditioners and you sit up in the stands and you feed the little deer corn every year and then they come in. (laughs) Go read those diaries. That's what real hunting's all about, okay? But we're, we're sort of looking into their world through a first person account. That's exactly what we're doing here in Ephesians chapter three. We are seeing Paul's first hand account. We're really looking at Paul's prayer list. All of us have prayer lists in our Bibles, people we're praying for. And if you're like mine, most of the things that are on my prayer list are people in the hospital, people that have been laid off from work, people that have uh, other things uh, materially or physically that we can pray for. And I've been convicted in recent years that more of my prayer life needs to be like the Apostle Paul's. The vast majority of the Apostle Paul's prayer life seems to be praying for the spiritual needs of the church, 
for other people. And I think we'll see that today. For example, the first thing he prays for in verse 14 is for the spiritual strength of the believers in Ephesus. Look at it. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. He says, I want God to give you strength according to his ability to do it. Now, I won't tarry long here because we've looked at this phrase according to before, but just to, to jog your memory. Remember the book of Ephesians is often called the treasure house of the Lord. It's where Paul puts on display the incredible wealth of the Lord's mercy and grace through salvation. And so when he uses the term according to, he's speaking of God's ability to do it. For example, if you had a not-for-profit organization that you were the CEO of and you needed to build a new hospital, for example, and it was going to cost $20 million to build the swing of the hospital, and you went to the wealthiest man in America and you said, sir, I know this particular medical um, practice is something you and your family are heavily invested in. I think it's something you could get behind. Will you financially support helping to build this $20 million building? And if that man were to say, the wealthiest man in America, you know what, you're right. My family and I went through this disease that you're going to be working on there. It means a lot to us. And he reaches in his wallet and he pulls out a brand new crisp $5 bill. And he hands it to you and says, blessings on you. Would that man have given according to his riches or out of his riches? He would be giving out of his riches, right? He gave something, but not in accordance with his ability. On the other hand, if you'd gone to that man told him the same story, he calls for his checkbook and he writes you a check above and beyond the total cost of the building, he would then be giving according to his riches and not out on. Well, this is how Paul prays. He prays that God would grant you spiritual strength according to his riches, not out of his riches. That, that's a lot, isn't it? You notice also the kind of strength he prays for. He prays for inner strength, the inner man is who Paul was most interested. What is the inner man? Well, you're made up of really two different people. There's the body with its bones and ligaments and um, blood vessels. But then there's the real you, your spirit. And children can even understand this. And we'll say, you know, for you to grow as a child taller, you have to have certain things, right? You have to have food, you have to have nourishment, you have to uh, get good sleep, you have to have exercise, all these things are necessary, but your spirit also is important. Now, here's the difference. Your body, when you're 18 or 19 years old, is going to be as tall as it's ever going to get, most likely. And when you turn 30 years old, you're as strong and healthy as you're ever going to be, and everything from there is downhill, amen? <laughs> now, we hate to say it so bluntly, but that seems to be pretty much the experience of most of us, right? And we do everything we can to hold it off as long as we can, but, but we know it's a losing battle. <laughs> that all of us are growing older and weaker the, the older uh, that, that we get. Now, not so with the Spirit. Here's the wonderful thing about the Spirit. You know, the oldest among us will live to be just over 100 years old. And the body that entire time is decaying, but the Spirit lives forever. And it does not have a point of diminishing returns. As long as you feed and you nourish and you take care of the spirit, it can grow stronger and stronger and stronger. Here's how I know. 
Some of the strongest people in the inner man that I know are the weakest people in the outer man. I grew up in little bitty country churches all over the southeast, and I can tell you the very backbone of most of those churches was frail little old ladies who stayed on their knees in prayer, who loved the Lord, who took their social security check and tithed faithfully upon it so that that church could remain open. You don't have to have a strong body to have a strong inner man. It's great if you can have both, but here's Paul's point. He wasn't so concerned about the physical. He was much more concerned about their spiritual strength. Now, he's speaking here of the process of sanctification. Your physical body, I said, has to have food and sleep and exercise. Your spiritual body, the inner man, has to have some things too. It has to have food. The Bible says of itself that it is our milk and our meat. And so if you neglect the reading of the word and the gathering of Christians to hear the word taught, for any period of time at all, you can expect your spirit to grow weaker. You wouldn't go weeks and months without eating physical food and not expect your body to grow weaker. But that's what we do with our spirit when we neglect it. When you pray, it's like exercise for your body. The Lord answers those prayers. Did you find your spirit encouraged today to hear that the Lord healed Julia Thurber? This is what happens when we, when we fellowship together. We are strengthened by one another. So he's speaking, first of all, of spiritual strength. The second thing on Paul's prayer list was that they would have surrendered hearts. Look at verse 17. The reason he wants their inner man to be strengthened, he says, is so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. You say, wait a second, pastor. We don't have to ask God over and over to dwell in our hearts. Don't we teach here that the moment of conversion, the Holy Spirit comes to reside within us? Yes, we do. By the way, that's not what it says here in the Greek. What it says here is that the Spirit of Christ would be at home in you. Have you ever lived somewhere but you weren't at home? You weren't comfortable? There was something always that kept you from settling down and, and being everything you could ever be in that particular location? Well, this is what Paul is saying. Paul says that you can be saved and yet Christ will not be at peace or dwelling and be at home within you. Why not? What would make Christ uncomfortable in a believer? Sin, right? Because he is holy. Because he is God incarnate. Sin in the presence of it in a believer's life causes the Lord not to be able to be at peace and dwell at rest within us. Which means we need to give him access to every room of the house, right? Not just say, now, Lord, I want you in this area of my life, but that area over there, that's for me. That's off limits. He wants access to every corner of the house so that he may sweep it clean, that he may settle down and have sweet rest, fellowship, and communion with you. Don't you find that when your house is clean that you can breathe better, that you can be comfortable, that you can relax, that you can be at rest? And here's what the Lord wants to do for us, he wants to cleanse us so thoroughly. He wants us to be submissive, not just at the, the heinous and the grossest of external sins. We're speaking here of sins of the mind as well as sins of the body, sins of omission as well as sins of commission. Paul says the reason I want the Lord to give you such spiritual strength is so that you can submit to him and give him access to every area of your life through a surrendered heart. But then the third point is really the main point that Paul wants to make is that he wants every believer 
to have supernatural comprehension of who they are and what they have by virtue of being in Christ. In the book of Philippians, Paul prays that we'd have supernatural peace. Do you remember? He says, be anxious for nothing, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And, and he says, the peace of God, which passes human comprehension, will stand guard over your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. In a similar way, he's praying that as we are strengthened in the inner man, as we submit every area of our life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that then we would begin to have a supernatural comprehension of who we are and whose we are. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints. Now, preceding this supernatural comprehension is being rooted and grounded in love. Rooted and grounded are two similar words. One is an agricultural word. Rooted has to do with a tree or a large plant that drives its taproot down deep and grabs hold of the rocks below and intermingles with the soil so that it's very difficult to move. David, when he wrote the first Psalm, said those who meditate on the word day and night will be like a tree planted by the waters, right? whose roots go deep and produces its fruit in its season. It's firm and stable. Now the other word there, grounded, is a construction term. Not talking about electricity. He didn't know about electricity in those days when he says grounded. He's speaking of the foundation. You can substitute the word founded upon. Jesus says we're to build our house upon the rock. And so he's saying the rock that we build upon the ground which we are deeply rooted in must be the love of Christ. The love of Christ. Grounded in love. This is agape love, as you know. It's very different from what passes for love in our culture. What passes for love in our culture is giving in response to what I can get from you. If you meet my needs to the degree that satisfies me, then I might reciprocate. That's not agape. Agape is a predetermined will to love despite the circumstances. This is how God loves us, and this is the kind of love that he wants the church to have for one another. And then he says this. He says he wants us to comprehend with all the saints the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of this love. Now, he's not saying that love is tangible in the fact that we can take out a ruler uh, or a compass and, and measure it out. Uh, we do find in the scriptures a number of places where there are literal measurements of large things. For example, in the book of Genesis, Noah is told the dimensions of the ark, right? And he's told how many cubits high and, and wide and, and long to make it. In the book of Revelation, when John sees the vision of the heavenly city, there is an angelic unit. And he literally measures out the size of, of the heavenly city. When Paul says he wants us to comprehend the breadth, the height, and the depth of our salvation and the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, I don't think that's what he's getting at. What he's getting at is found in verse 19. He says, and that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. What he's saying is there's a lot of people who are true Christians, who have repented of their sins, and when they die, they're going to heaven but they are failing to understand the resources that are available to them because of the abundant, rich grace that God offers in the here and now. 
and they're living in spiritual rags and they're paupers spiritually, not knowing that they are children of the king and that he wants and is anxious and is ready to grant them these spiritual blessings if they would only ask. The scripture says we have not, why? Because we ask not. And we're gonna look at next week the summation of all of this, verses 20, when he says, now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ever ask or think. The problem is for many of us is that long time ago we ceased to think and we ceased to ask. And so let's uh, ask the Lord to, to expand our hearts and minds, to understand the, the incredible spiritual treasures that are at our disposal by virtue of our relationship to Jesus. And we have to be very careful at this point because some people are going to hear this, that God wants me to be physically healthy all the time. That it's God's will that I have a huge bank account. It's God's will that I live in a mansion. It's God's will that I have a yacht. That's not what he's saying at all. He's speaking of spiritual blessings. And he says, here's what he's praying for, three things. He says, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would endue every believer with power and strength in the inner man, not the external physical, in the inner man, so that they could surrender every area of their life to the lordship of Jesus Christ, so that in essence, his will, Christ's will, would become their will so that they could pray in accordance with that will and that the manifold wisdom of God would be placed on display for all the world to see. That's Paul's prayer list. How does it compare with yours, dear one? It's okay to pray for the physical. We did that for Julia and the Lord answered in an amazing way. You'll do that today for your loved ones and you should, but don't neglect to pray for that which is eternal, the inner man, that which lasts forever. Let's pray just now. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word today. And I confess to you, Lord, that um, I am often preoccupied with what I can see and hear and taste. And Father, I'm often preoccupied with my own comfort and ease of life and even in my prayer life, If I were to be honest, my own prayer list sometimes shows selfishness. Lord, I confess that to you and ask your forgiveness. Lord, it's very obvious and logical that we should be more concerned with that which is of eternal significance. So Father, I wanna lift up the spiritual needs of this church today. First of all, Lord, if there's a lost person in this room, I pray that your spirit even now would convict that person of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. Lord, would you draw that person even now by your convicting spirit? Help them to see their need of a savior. Give them the faith to repent and to believe. Lord, I pray for a Christian in this room, maybe who is wayward, maybe who is uh, contemplating rejecting their family, going another way, starting over. Lord, I pray you draw that one back to yourself. Rebuke them today, Father, in your spirit and hold them close to you. Father, I pray for that believer here today who's tired and worn out and 
ready to throw in the towel. Lord, would you encourage them today that you have not forgotten them? Would you give them strength in the inner man to go on, Lord, that they might comprehend the enormity, the breadth and height and depth of the love that you have for them and the grace that is available to them, Lord. And I pray that for every believer in this church, Lord, including myself. Lord, would you bring our will under your own. Help us to be submissive to your Lordship in every way. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.